I don't want to be a martyr. No, I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, if you will remember when last I left you, I left you in the 1960s of medieval theology, which was the time of the Reformation. Not a lot of historical things to add to this episode, simply because it falls within the same time period. So you may be asking, why do this? Well, one, because this is just kind of a cool story. And this is just fun, and there aren't that many, you know, little fun ones that you realize that the world is not as cut and dry as you realize most of the time. So, with all of that said, let's fly right by the historical stuff and head right to the man, the martyrdom of John Frith. Now, there's a name for you, and if I say it incorrectly 17 times, I apologize, but Frith does not just roll off my tongue, at least. Now, he is the son of an innkeeper in what is uh, Kent, England. Now, the inn that his father is in charge of is the White Horse Inn. Yes, that White Horse Inn, renowned for its influence during the English Reformation. So, safe to say that good old uh, John Frith grew up in a world that was basically a hotbed of Reformation ideology. And if you have learned nothing else from all of these martyrs, well, I, I shouldn't say this, because I want you to learn a bunch of stuff. But if you've learned nothing else, I guess, realize that ideas don't occur in a vacuum, and they also do not exist and function in a vacuum. So when we talk about the Reformation, people go, oh, it's October 31st, 1517. Well, yeah, that's the official date we give to the beginning of the Reformation, just like you know we give 476 as the official end of the Roman Empire when the Goths are you know, finally crushing the Romans for, for good. But... The Roman Empire had been falling for the better part of 200 years at that stage, and the Reformation doesn't just arrive in 1517. That is the culmination of literal centuries of work. Remember, um, Wycliffe dies in the 14th century, the 1300s, and we're talking about Lollard beliefs here in the 16th century. And Wycliffe doesn't get his ideas in a vacuum. He's reading theology and studying the people that have gone before. So, Mr. John Frith was apparently an exceptional student who excelled in—you will talk about this. This is just a weird little grouping. He excelled in Latin, Greek, and mathematics. Now— one of those things is not like the other, although I have been told in the past that someone who is mathematically inclined will do well with Latin. So there you go. Deal with that what you will. It's just a different world. Now, he's a student. He goes through grammar school. He gets a degree, goes to Queen's College, ends up at King's College, gets a degree from Cambridge. These are all names you've heard. This this dude is is, you know, kind of a thing. And then there is a new university cropping up in Oxford. Yes, that that Oxford University that you that you've heard of. He um, John Frith is brought in as a professor because dude's apparently brilliant and was well liked. Now during his time at Oxford, he was apparently arrested and imprisoned for possessing heretical books. I don't know what books he had. I think the weirder part of this story is the fact that a university has its own prison. Just just 
process that for a minute. When we talk about it as being a different world, that the bishop in charge of this university can imprison you on charges of heresy. Now, Frith is released not long after imprisonment, and decide while he is sentenced, haha, to a uh, an area. He's supposed to remain within the Oxford general area. I believe it's eight miles, which wouldn't be that difficult or. Um, Oh, heavy of a burden, I guess would be the word. I can't think of the word I want to use. He decides that, you know, they already locked me up once, and I'm not really known for keeping my mouth shut or not thinking what I think, so let's get out of here. And he goes to Europe, specifically Antwerp. And yes, Antwerp is one of those areas during this time that kind of becomes one of the free cities, so to speak. While there... Excuse me. While there, he works as a translator with Tyndale, and he actually translates some of the works of Patrick Hamilton. Yes, that Patrick Hamilton, who we mentioned a few weeks ago. He also debates theology in writing, so he's having back and forth with Thomas More and Thomas Cranmer in England, as well as some other folks, specifically debating purgatory and the Mass. Now, if you are a Protestant in the 21st century, we're getting closer to the Duck Dodgers being true in the 24th and a half century, but if you are a Protestant in the 21st century, then you are probably sitting here going, why is purgatory in the Mass always the thing? Why is this the thing that is handling, that is uh, that is hanging people, or in this case, burning them? And the answer is because it strikes at the heart of the Roman system. With purgatory in place, you have this... This stick, basically, that you can dangle over the parishioners that no matter how many times they've been to Mass, no matter how much confession they've said, there's going to be a little time that they got to work off because, you know, nobody's perfect. Likewise, it's also a great way of squeezing extra piety and money, more than anything else, out of people. Well, you know, you don't know how long Grandma's got in purgatory, but for the low, low cost of four ninety nine, you know, for less than the cost of a cup of coffee a day, you can spring Grandma from purgatory. <laughs> but only if you call now in the next 15 minutes, right? And then we'll double your offer and we'll get Grandpa out too. <sighs> Sales techniques are nothing new. And when you're wondering about the mass, why is that such a big deal? I've mentioned before. In the Mass, the Roman Mass, it is what is known as an unbloody sacrifice. The priest is literally calling down, well, according to their theology, the body and blood of Christ so that he can offer that sacrifice to the parishioners. Remove the real body and real blood of Christ. Remove the real sacrifice. Remove the real sacrifice. Remove the necessity of a priest. Remove the necessity of the priest, and you can start to see how you can unwind this theology and the th- and the authority it brings very very quickly now for reasons known only to himself, because I don't have it written down anywhere, I can't find it, Frith, despite the fact that he's married and has family at this point, decides to secretly return to England. This is where it gets a little hilarious. I mean, as much as a murder story can ever be hilarious. So while in England in 1532, he is traveling around, meeting with people, doing some different things, he is arrested for vagrancy. He's disguising himself, and apparently Frith was well-known for his elaborate disguises and dressing up, and I, 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 I'm picturing Mission Impossible, like, with all the masks that they just pull off, and, you know, but I know it wasn't like that, but in my mind it now is. 
So he's arrested for vagrancy and stuck in the stocks and left there for days. I mean, days. Now, when they were stuck in the stocks, they mainly did that because they're trying to figure out who you are. And, you know, he's disguised and he's not really cooperating here because he's got a death sentence on his head. And so he calls for the local schoolmaster and converses with him in both Latin and Greek in order to complain about the treatment he has received because the guards don't speak Latin and Greek. They don't care. And so basically he's been starved for the better part of a week because they barely fed you when you were in the stocks. And the schoolmaster complains that this man's too well-educated and too nice to be left in the stocks like this, so he's actually released. Not because of anything other than the fact that he knows Latin and Greek, and he's apparently polite in Latin and Greek. So he continues traveling around, but eventually this is going to catch up with him. And he is arrested and sent to the Tower of London. He is tried before both Cranmer and Moore, which is just one of the weirdest groupings of humanity ever there. And and again, the debate when during during his heresy trial is... Two doctrines, purgatory and communion, the mass, the transubstantiation. To reject transubstantiation is to remove the authority of the Roman church. So, of course, he is convicted, and here's the other unintentional comedy part. On July 4th of 1533, he is burned at the stake with several other heretics. Now, the comedy is not the July 4th part. The comedy is that he is actually burned on the authority of Henry VIII by um, Thomas More, one week before Henry VIII is officially excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church, and that the man who presides over his trial is actually later executed and is counted as one of the great martyrs of the Roman Catholic Church, and that is, of course, Thomas More. Now, the story of the execution itself is not too in-depth. There is some interesting thing of note, though, and that is apparently a windy day. And because of how you were assembled on this windy day, the wind was whipping up the flames and the smoke away from Frith, but not away from him in such a manner that he wasn't going to die. He was just going to die slower and in a more painful manner and in a manner where everyone could see because the smoke was being cleared away. So according to testimony, though, he was quite overjoyed at this. And the reason he was overjoyed is because the flames that were wicked away from him that caused his suffering to increase were actually put upon other, um, other prisoners who were being executed, and they all died very, very quickly because their fires were exceptionally hot because the wind had blown in their direction. Now, he was not happy that they're dead, but he's happy that they don't have to suffer. In other words, the strength that the Spirit has given him can rejoice that he can suffer and that he can rejoice in the mercy that God has provided to his fellow prisoners. That is a comfort that is unknown outside of persecution. And by the way, there's actually a letter that is still in um, in existence. We have this letter from Tyndale to Frith in prison where Tyndale encourages him to pray. If your sufferings are more than you can bear, then pray to God and he will ease them or strengthen you to endure. These guys got it because these guys ran to the scriptures and they stood there and defended them. Christian, this is the hope we have to have. This is the promise that we are given that God has not forsaken and forgotten us and that he will bring us to a good end in his kingdom. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.